Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. The net neutrality saga has been going on for well over a decade, and it would honestly take me the entire time that we normally uh, allocate for this podcast to recap everything that's happened so far, but I'm going to give you a very abbreviated version as background. In the early days of the commercial internet, there was plenty of competition for internet service providers, as it was fairly easy for basically anyone to set themselves up as an ISP just by utilizing the existing phone network. Part of this was due to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which clearly said that telecommunications providers were required to share access to their networks. However, as we moved into a world of broadband networks, mainly DSL and cable, the companies that invested in the infrastructure for those networks stopped letting other uh, other set-up ISPs on top of them, claiming much greater control over those networks. Those big telcos and cable companies petitioned the FCC to declare those broadband networks to be information services rather than telecommunications networks, which would subject them to different standards and require basically no regulations or oversight whatsoever. Uh, A lawsuit followed all this, brought by a small ISP called Brand X that sought to have the FCC's classification ruled in error. Eventually, the Supreme Court weighed in, saying that the FCC did have the authority to classify broadband however it decided, and it wasn't for the courts to second-guess that authority. Around that time, as the big broadband providers were getting more and more powerful and facing less and less competition, they began to hint at plans to exert that kind of market power more broadly. Most famously, AT&T's Ed Whitaker announced that He wanted companies such as Google to start paying AT&T extra for having traffic traverse his pipes as if he owned them. Uh, All of this converged to bring about the first big net neutrality fight. While there are disagreements over what net neutrality even means, the specific question was basically whether or not internet access providers could put a toll booth on the internet and or otherwise limit block or throttle content, or of course charge people to have those limits, blocks, or throttles removed. Over the years, various attempts were made to set rules with a very, very, very weak set of rules, uh, which Verizon helped craft, eventually getting tossed out of court because the court said that it seemed pretty clear that the FCC was trying to put rules on broadband networks that it was only allowed to put on telecommunications networks. Remember the difference between broadband and telecommunications. Uh, And that is that they were classified under Title II of the Communications Act, which is the section on telecommunications providers. After a big fight, a public fight that you were probably aware of when it happened, the FCC somewhat surprisingly actually did exactly what no one expected it to do, which was reclassifying broadband back under Title II uh, and wireless broadband as well. So it was no longer an information service subject to almost no rules, but now to a telecommunication service under Title II subject to a very, very short and fairly simple set of rules, such as no blocking and no throttling. While 
There are a whole bunch of other regulations under Title II. The FCC was clear to forbear from those rules or basically say that it was making a clear statement that those other rules would not apply and the FCC could not enforce them. Nonetheless, various broadband providers sued, of course, because that's what they do. And with the case going straight to the D.C. Circuit Appeals Court, uh, where after many, many, many months of everyone waiting and checking the docket uh, every day that they release rulings, two weeks ago, the court finally ruled in favor of the FCC in almost every way imaginable. Uh, to some of this, to, to some uh, this was good news, and to many, it was a pretty big surprise. Many people actually expected something more of a split decision. Anyways, there's still plenty to discuss and what what the ruling means for net neutrality and kind of where net neutrality and broadband is going. And so today we've got a special guest in the form of Carl Bodie, who regularly writes about telco broadband issues, among other things, on TechDirt, as well as over at DSL Reports. So welcome, Carl. Thanks for having me. It's great to sure. be here. Thanks, thanks for joining us. So let's start out with uh, discussing this particular ruling. Did it surprise you? It, it absolutely did. Um, you know, I, I, thought, I thought net neutrality was dead several times by this point. We've been writing and talking about this for 14 odd years, <laughs> you know, and it's actually a debate that kind of goes deeper if you talk to the old telecom uh, wonk guys. Um, but I was pretty surprised. I thought, I thought when Verizon struck down the original rules in 2010, that was pretty much done. Because yeah. you, had comp- you had companies like Google suddenly kind of shifting their position as they realized that, um, you know, not having net neutrality on wireless might just help their uh, Android ambitions. And you started to see some political wavering there on the side of some companies that have traditionally been net neutrality supporters. So it, it did surprise me. And it's a pretty huge deal because I think some consumer advocates were a little worried that they were going to have a split decision where, you know, uh, wired networks were covered but wireless weren't. And with everything being on wireless, that was, that was a pretty huge deal, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, it was, it was interesting, because if, you know, there was definitely a sense, I think, among sort of the, you know, the, the telco and cable folks that they, they kind of expected a split decision, I think. Um, You know, there was, there was an article that I guess, uh, Michael Powell, who's the former FCC chair, had written, and he's now the basically the head lobbyist for the cable industry, um, where he was basically just discussing, you know, what, before the ruling came out, kind of, you know, what the possible rulings would be and what they would mean for the industry. And it didn't, it didn't even, uh, it didn't even mention the idea that the FCC might win across the board. Yeah. 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 I mean, he, you know, he basically said, well, you know, it's, you know, we could win or, you know, there'll be some sort of split decision where I can still declare victory more or less. And yet, you know, this idea that, that the FCC would, would win right across the board, you know, wasn't, wasn't really considered. I think they threw so many legal arguments at the case, you know, from their, <laughs> right. this was violating their First Amendment rights to everything else. You know, this was going to decimate broadband investment. They had, you know, they had they had seven to ten arguments in there. And I think they assumed that some of those would be taken seriously. And they really weren't. You know, yeah. even, even the dissenting opinion is really kind of arguing more about how the FCC uh, logically justified their position than anything else. You know, it was a pretty clean sweep for uh, net neutrality. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, to some extent, I don't think it should have been that big of a surprise. I think I think all of us were a little cynical, which is why. I think yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I mean, if you look at the previous rulings, 
you know, both the Brand X and then the original net neutrality ruling, you know, it's it's pretty clear that that Tom Wheeler, uh, you know, who heads the FCC now and, you know, the people who work for him crafted these rules very much with those two rulings in mind and making it clear that, you know, under like the Brand X ruling, you know, the court is, makes it clear that it's supposed to give, you know, deference, I guess, to the FCC's decision making authority um, in that area. And then, you know, under the the net neutrality ruling, they basically said, look, you're trying to do Title II without calling it Title II and, and laid out the path to do it, which part of that was like, you kind of have to call this Title II. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so that's what they did. And so, and, yeah. And the great irony is that, you know, if, 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 Verizon had just left those rules in place. Most of the ISPs at the time, like AT&T and Comcast, were perfectly happy with those rules. Right. They didn't, they didn't cover wireless. They had huge loopholes in there. They were effectively codifying the fact that you could violate net neutrality. Sense, <laughs> right. You know, that's what they were doing. And if Verizon was smart enough not to sue, you know, they would have been in a good position. But they sued, and the courts, like you said, gave the FCC a pretty clear path forward. Uh, for argument structure, and, and they won. So it's, it's yeah. pretty much we can all thank Verizon for that. <laughs> Which is kind of incredible. And, and yeah. again, the details there are, are fairly incredible because Verizon more or less helped write those rules for, for the FCC. Yeah, and, right. And then, and then sued over them anyways. Yeah, they, 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 were, they really thought that if they sued, they could kind of erode the FCC's broader authority and prevent them from regulating broadband for many, many years to come. They, they basically got greedy. And, yeah, uh, it, it backfired pretty painfully. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they miscalculated in two ways. You know, I think first they miscalculated in, uh, you know, sort of, um, I, I guess they didn't miscalculate in how the court would rule in the original one. Um, but, you know, but they, I, maybe they didn't expect the court to sort of lay out a roadmap for how the FCC could go. And then the second thing was that they miscalculated. And I think a lot of us miscalculated in what Tom Wheeler would do when, yeah. when he, he came in to run the FCC because, absolutely, yeah. you know, his predecessor basically was willing to fold and, and effectively do what the, uh, you know, what Verizon and the other big broadband players wanted to do over and over again. Yeah, I think a lot of the cynicism we were mentioning about this actually being such good news and surprising us is because, you know, the FCC for a good 15 years under both parties was essentially a rubber stamp for the broadband industry. You know, yeah. they, they, they really, they would, with a few minor exceptions, they would approve pretty much anything AT&T, Verizon, and Comcast put down. Um, there were a couple skirmishes like Comcast throttling BitTorrent that popped up. Um, but by and large, that agency was a rubber stamp for the broadband and telecom sector. And so when you suddenly have a former wireless and cable lobbyist coming in and standing up for consumers, it was like the uh, it was like a Twilight Zone episode a little bit. It got very <laughs> strange there for a while. And then we were all surprised at the end result. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are questions, though. I mean, this this case is not necessarily over. Right. It's going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. Um, what do you have any sense on what do you think is going to happen there? I've spent I've spent a little bit of time talking to different uh, telecom lawyers who are pretty well versed in the in the in the the uh, deeper nuances of this stuff and and most of them don't think that either an en banc approach or the Supreme Court is going to be a very likely uh, success path for these ISPs. You know, AT and T pretty quickly came out saying they would appeal to the Supreme Court, but you know, the Supreme Court simply doesn't hear all that many cases to begin with. Right. Um, so I think most telecom lawyers think this is pretty much it. There's going to be some skirmishing and i'm sure there's going to be some more creative arguments from the side of broadband providers arguing that net neutrality will hurt puppies and rip, <laughs> rip the earth from its orbital axis and stuff like that but i think by and large 
the legal case is going to settle here. Right. So, I mean, just in terms of process, right? So they have sort of two paths that they can take. The en banc one, which you mentioned, is is basically asking the um, the D.C. Circuit, which is the court that hear, heard this case, to hear it again, but with a larger panel. Um, generally, all of the the judges um, that are in the Ninth Circuit. Um, so the, the original case is heard by three. Sometimes you can ask for it to be reheard by, by what's you know a full slate of judges. Um, that rarely works. You know, most courts won't do it unless there's there's really a lot of concern uh, about the ruling and a lot of disagreement about it. It happens, but it would there's no obvious reason to do an en banc rehearing of this. And then the second thing is obviously the Supreme Court where, uh, you know, you petition the Supreme Court to hear your case, but they turn down like 97% of the, the cases. You know, it's it's possible because you never know. I mean, the Supreme Court did hear Brand X. Yeah, um, right, right. But, but, you know, usually the Supreme Court will only take a case if there's like a circuit split. So different appeals courts have ruled differently on the same issue or they see it as something that's, you know, a really, really important issue. And they're sort of concerned about about the lower court ruling. And I'm not sure there's anything, you know, there's nothing in this ruling that seems to go against the Brand X ruling. You know, I I mean, there's different justices on the Supreme Court. So maybe somebody wants to speak up on it. But yeah, I, I think it would be pretty surprising um, if they did, and you're also going to have, well, I mean, depending on the timing, um, you know, if there's an appeal to the Supreme Court, I guess the White House could weigh in depending on who's in the White House next year. You yeah. know, they, they could weigh in one way or the other on this case. But, um, you know, if it if it remains a Democratic administration, I don't think they would fight against this. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think the real concern amongst uh, consumer advocates going forward is one of enforcement more than anything. So right. if you have, you know, an FCC that gets shuffled a little bit and you bring in some revolving door regulators uh, to take up some of the commission spots, you can have them just basically ignore that net neutrality violations are happening. Um, so that's the biggest concern. You know, as we've seen with past mergers in telecom, a lot of times they'll pass conditions and then they just won't bother to enforce them. Right. Nobody, yeah. nobody, nobody in the press will really, really ever bother to say, "Oh, look, you didn't really enforce any of these." You know, right. Not, right. It's just not yeah. talked about much. It's not interesting enough for readers or something. I, I don't know why that is, but it's just how it is. Yeah, the FCC is not exactly known for, for its enforcement. <laughs> no, no. So it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. And then, and then, of course, you know, we have there's still loopholes in the rules. Of course. Um, yeah. Zero, uh, zero rating and usage caps being the biggest one. Yeah, that so that I'm particularly worried about. Yeah, so let's discuss that a little bit. We did, you know, we did a whole podcast a, a few months ago with with Marvin Amori about zero rating and stuff. But l- let's discuss that's still a pretty big concern, where you know the idea being that you know the the broadband providers and especially especially in wireless, but also in in the landline or wired broadband area where they're putting on data caps but then exempting certain content for it and basically getting the same impact that they want. Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, like we've seen on interconnection with the Netflix debates that were happening last year, you know, when when they realized that certain certain anti-competitive practices were out of their range, they started pushing the fights to other areas of the network, you know, like the edge where they connect with Netflix or, you know, usage caps. But I, I, I think like you and I have always argued is, is you wouldn't need net neutrality rules if there was actual broadband competition. Yeah. Um, so the big, the big thing moving forward is basically usage caps and zero rating are taking advantage of those, the lack of competition in a lot of these markets. And, um, 
you know, the FCC basically said that they would take a wait and see approach to whether or not uh, zero rating violated what they call the general conduct rule of the net neutrality rules. And so far, they've been pretty glacial in, in making any kind of indication whether they're going to uh, rule one way or the other. But now they're on uh, more legal, uh, sound legal footing. I think that's the big question, how they're going to how they're going to fall on zero rating. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if they if they do anything this year on zero rating before, you know, because next year there'll be, you know, there'll be a new administration and the, the FCC will begin to, to shuffle its members. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've got their hands full with a lot of other things like um, privacy rules. They're, they're thinking about uh, applying some basic privacy protections to broadband uh, using, you know, the title two authority that they effectively just won. Um, yeah. They also have the cable box fight. They want to try and bring competition to the cable box. They've got spectrum issues that they're going to be tackling. So I'm just not sure uh, if zero rating is going to be an argument that uh, consumer advocates win. Because yeah. you've, you've got consumers who effectively don't understand that usage caps are pretty arbitrary to begin with. So they see zero rating or letting this content come through as, you know, kind of a, a big win. They get free stuff. They think that's really neat. Right. And that's about as far as their understanding goes. They don't see the the broader negative precedent that zero rating has. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And, then, and I mean, and you, oh. well, you also have combined with that, you have Google and Netflix not wanting to oppose net uh, zero rating because it effectively brings them more ad eyeballs, right? They, they yeah. have no, they have no reason to really oppose it. So between consumers thinking it's nifty and uh, a lot of Silicon Valley companies thinking it's okay, uh, you're not going to see a lot of political pressure on the FCC. So I'm, I'd be pretty surprised if they come down hard on zero rating. Yeah, which is um, which is unfortunate. I mean, you know, the I, I, it it bugs me to no end that that it's seen as sort of a pro-consumer thing. You know, the the line that I've used before is, you know, the it's, you know, you don't you don't call someone a hero who sets a house on fire and then saves the people in it, right? But you know, you, you shouldn't get credit for for being a hero for saving people from the thing that you did in the first place, right? And yeah, that's right. exactly what zero rating is. You set an arbitrary data cap and then you rescue people from that data cap. That's not a pro-consumer move, right? It's only pro-consumer and rescuing you from the the horrible anti-consumer thing that, yeah. that the same company did in the first place. Right. My problem with zero rating is basically that it lets ISPs violate net neutrality if they're just clever enough about it. Right. You know? Right. And and some of these implementations have been clever. Comcast, for example, exempts their new streaming service, which they creatively called Stream, right. um, from their own usage caps. Uh, Verizon exempts its Go90 millennial-focused streaming video service from its wireless usage caps. You know, that's pretty obvious to most people that that's an anti-competitive advantage against other streaming services. Yeah. And then, then you have T-Mobile, who did got a little more creative and only exempted the top 90 or so big video services, you know, and gave consumers the ability to opt out. Yeah. And consumers like it. They like the idea of free stuff, and they don't see that opening the door to zero rating creates a lot of problems down the road. They don't, they don't understand it. And I've tried, to, I've tried to argue the point, and I just I think it's been an uphill battle Yeah, uh, well, to make it clear. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things, though, that, that I think, you know, if if they can c continue to get away with it, you know, zero rating is going to become the rule. It's not going to be the exception, right? I mean, yeah. the, the the broadband players will, will drive everything through that through that lens because it allows them to do what they want in the first place. Yeah, which is basically be able to choose winners and losers, and it puts yeah. them in the, I mean, it's basically what net neutrality rules were passed to stop in the first place. It's yeah, just exactly. done in a different method. 
I mean, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, if if that happens, if it becomes a big enough deal, if the FCC would then revisit it. But then again, you would have to rely on there actually being an FCC that that cares enough about this stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. And if you have shuffled the deck a little bit at the FCC, there's no guarantee of that. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, right? I mean, one of the issues that people have brought up, um, you know, people who don't like these rules, generally speaking, are saying like, you know, well, since it's just an FCC thing rather than a congressional, uh, you know, law that puts in place net neutrality rules, that the next FCC could change the rules back or could change the rules in a different way. Yeah, they so, they they could, but they'd have to open a whole new public proceeding, and it, it would be a very difficult process. So again, the worry is more they won't enforce it, then they'll try to create new rules. It is possible for them to do, to do that, but I think the uh, it'd be it'd be a difficult path. Yeah, I mean, there would definitely be a lot of public outcry if they tried to remove the rule so quickly. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> it's, the whole thing is crazy. I mean, so now, you know, just to, to we're not going to be fair here because both of us think that the rules are a good thing. But, yeah, right, but, right. but, but just to, to go through some of the rule, some of the reasons why people are worried about this rule or upset about it, um, you know, there is, you know, the, the concern that's generally brought up is that it'll scare off investment. Um, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, that's, that's been brought up pretty constantly. They've had a few think tanks release a few studies claiming that if, you know, net neutrality passes or you reclassify ISPs as common carriers, then the sky will fall. You know, and what we've seen instead is that, you know, investment has clicked along perfectly happily uh, since they voted to approve the rules last February of yeah. last year. You know, there's, Google Fiber is pushing into new markets. You've got small competitors like Ting uh, pushing into a few small markets. Um, you know, even a few of the telcos have sped up their uh, deployment of a, a limited fiber once they saw that cherry picking these neighborhoods was going to be allowed by the Google fiber model. So you, investment is that's never been a, a serious issue. Um, you have a lot of fake science out there suggesting otherwise. But uh, it's just I mean, you could look you could look at Google fiber as a pure example of why that's just not going to happen. Yeah. And I think actually, I mean, one of the one of the things in terms of that question asked earlier about, you know, if the next FCC comes in and tries to change the rules by that time, we'll have, you know, some data to show what's happened under these existing rules for, you know, the, for a few years at least. Yeah. And, you know, showing the doom and gloom scenarios not necessarily being accurate in any way, shape or form. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. You have to realize the FCC hasn't really enforced anything since the rules are passed, right? They've sure. Had, they've, they've made a few threats on interconnection, where, which were enough to stop all the fighting between Netflix and the ISPs. Yeah. Um, well, that's and that's an interesting question, too, because the interconnection stuff isn't technically covered under these rules. Right. And and I mean, it was this weird thing where a lot of the sort of public discussion about the net neutrality fight kept bringing up the interconnection. And that's, you know, at the back end. So sort of, you know, where you know so most of the just to be clear for people who don't live as deep in the weeds on this as we do <laughs> like so so most of the net neutrality discussion in the fight is over over what's known as the last mile right and, and effectively you know what um your broadband provider can do between you know its systems in your home so that last mile of of connection the interconnection issue was what was happening way on the back end where you know where like Comcast or Verizon was connecting to Netflix and basically the broadband providers were 
um, deliberately clogging those connections to then slow things down, uh, and that would then also slow things down at the uh, on that last mile. But it was really happening much earlier than that, and it was a, a space that nobody had thought would be a problem because any reasonable broadband provider would provide enough ports to make that not an issue. But that yeah. that wasn't yeah. what, what was happening, yeah. um, and so you know those examples of sort of the the stuttering uh, Netflix accounts were, were used over and over again. Um, and then, but as soon as these rules passed, suddenly, magically, surprisingly, out of nowhere, yeah, <laughs> all, yeah. all of the interconnection fights seemed to disappear, and suddenly, all those broadband you know players were willing to provide uh, you know a, a wide enough connection for Netflix. And all it took was a regulator uh, just vaguely implying that they might actually do their job, which is uh, right. pretty amazing when you think about it. That's all it took, and, and it was pretty successful. So you know, it, it's a good lesson for regulators that sometimes just you know sometimes threats do work <laughs> right yeah it's kind of crazy um so but you know i think also um you know but it also does show exactly what you're saying about the zero rating stuff which is like you know the willingness of the broadband players to look for anything um where they can effectively stick a new toll booth somewhere right yeah yeah and so you know the the zero rating i mean a lot of the zero rating stuff right now they're not charging for but there's clear interest in being able to charge for it the yeah, interconnection I, stuff was definitely an attempt to charge for things but you know and at&t is planning i think three or four different streaming video services later this year so if uh, zero rating is allowed to be the the, the rule of the land you're going to find them getting pretty creative in terms of you know how they treat their own streaming TV services. I think they're going to probably follow Comcast lead and say, you know, because this technically doesn't ever touch the real mm -hmm. broader internet, it can't possibly be a net neutrality violation. And whatever you want to call it, net neutrality violation or just anti-competitive, it's just anti-competitive behavior. And, you know, it doesn't matter what it's technically called. And the only way to stop that is going to be more broadband competition. I mean, yeah. so it's, ni it's nice we have these rules, but until we get uh, broader uh, broadband competition, we're going to continue to have problems like these because these guys are very very creative at finding uh, uh, amazing new ways to take advantage of the uh, monopoly over the last mile. Yeah, so so let's get to the competition question, right? Because you know, I think both of us have made this point many times, and I've I've argued for a long time that you know the whole net neutrality fight was was really a symptom of the larger problem, which was the lack of competition. And that if we had real competition, you wouldn't you know you you were much less likely to see kind of the net neutrality violations like we were. Yeah. So you know. And the FCC and the government has done very little to actually encourage more competition. Um, you know, w what do you think can be or should be done there? Well, we, we, we've had numerous opportunities to try and do something about this. You know, we had that t uh, 2010 National Broadband Plan that they yeah. released and made a big deal about. And, and it barely talked about competition seriously. And it, it barely could acknowledge that uh, consumers in the United States pay some of the highest prices for broadband in the developed world, you know. And pricing in general isn't something the FCC likes to talk too much about. Yeah. Um, but I think I think in terms of moving forward from here, they have an opportunity on wireless to maybe get a little bit more competition into some of these markets. You know, millimeter wave technologies and the uh, the release of fifth generation wireless. I think that'll that'll help quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's 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 still going to be an uphill <laughs> climb. It really is. It's going to be for a while. People, people, people. A lot of people. I saw the net neutrality ruling come out, and they were like, "Oh, this is over. This debate is over." But it's, <laughs> it's not. It's not going to be over. I mean, it, it technically probably will never be over. Yeah, you're you're always going to have to worry about uh, companies taking advantage of that lack of competition. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking like 
you know, fifth generation wireless stuff, you know, that's still mostly likely going to be the big wireless providers, right? Yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the spectrum auctions are still pretty well skewed towards bigger companies who can right. afford to, you know, battle it out in these auctions. Um, so, yeah, we're still going to be talking for many years that uh, AT&T and Verizon is the core players in this. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's nice. It's nice to see T-Mobile scrapping it up in there a little bit. Um, Sprint is struggling right now. Yeah, uh, the, the possibility is there. I just, I just don't know. My, I, going back to the competition conversation, I think the biggest FCC policy decision of maybe the last twenty years was their decision to finally stand up for municipal broadband. You know, which is basically these communities that have said, "All right, I'm tired of Comcast. I'm tired of CenturyLink. I'm tired of paying." $80 for a three megabit per second DSL line um, and basically building their own networks or working with public private partnerships with uh, other companies to build networks. Um, so what the ISPs have done is they've passed laws in about 19 states hamstringing towns and cities from doing this. You know, you can't work with a third party company. You can't build your own network. If you do, you have to hold very costly public referendums that we're then going to pummel with our lobbyists and our unlimited budgets. You know, they've, they've right. made it very difficult to do this route. And the FCC basically, at the same time that they made the uh, net neutrality ruling, they declared that uh, this, these state laws actually uh, conflict with the FCC's uh, congressional mandate to ensure even and timely broadband deployment. So they've taken aim at uh, two such laws in North Carolina and Tennessee, and those fights are probably the biggest thing on the telecom front that I think are going on right now, even though wireless gets a lot more attention. Because if you can get rid of some of those state protectionist laws that have been passed by AT&T, Comcast, Time Warner Cable, and CenturyLink, then you can actually start looking at public-private partnerships to fill in some of these competitive gaps that we have in the country, where yeah. broadband providers simply don't want to spend money to upgrade these more rural or second-tier, third-tier cities because it's not profitable enough. It's profitable, it's just not profitable quickly enough for yeah, their investors. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a, it's a really interesting space because that is one where we're actually seeing competition happening. Um, and, the you know, I mean, the North Carolina example is, is crazy, right, where that one was not only, you know, the laws against uh, municipal broadband were, were so clearly written by the lobbyists that apparently at one hearing where a question was asked of the legislator who put forth the bill, he actually, you know, passed it off to a Time Warner cable lobbyist who was there in the yeah, room. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, it's, could you be any, any more yeah, obvious? I, as to... I, 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 can't, I cannot overstate uh, how much control these ISPs have over state legislative bodies. I mean, they, they literally write the laws, um, and these laws are awful. Most yeah. of the time, um, yeah. and I, I can't say that enough. Yeah, and I mean the other one is interesting too, right? In in Tennessee, right? Because you, in Tennessee, you actually have um, Chattanooga, very famously has they have a municipal broadband, um, which is you know basically become the gold standard of success, right? I mean it's it's been a a, a wonderful success story. Um, for that city, and I think the the mayor there was just saying that it was it actually helped revitalize the city, right? Yeah, right. Just last and, week, I think he came out and said that it brought jobs, it helped lower unemployment rates, it uh, kind of helped revamp the entire Chattanooga area. And and part of what they're trying to do is they actually want to expand, but they're some, they're they're currently blocked from expanding. Yeah. Um, because of the the law in Tennessee. Yeah, and yeah. If, if I recall correctly, they actually you know a lawmaker was trying to get parts of that restriction lifted, um, and they were they they had a counter proposal bill that simply allowed them to uh, deploy to one neighboring county or something, but it was mm -hmm. it was it was shot down as well by 
by uh, uh, local legislators, one of which was a former AT&T executive <laughs> in the state. So it's, it's pretty polluted. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting space, right? Because so people, you know, one of the complaints against municipal broadband is this idea that like, you know, you don't want publicly funded, um, you know, entities competing with private entities, right? So yeah. that that's part of the argument or like taxpayer money, like our taxpayer money shouldn't be going towards these things. But, you know, in, in a lot of cases, that's not even true or accurate, right? And we, we currently have, you know, public uh, entities competing with private entities. I mean, the Postal Service competes with FedEx and, yeah. you know, FedEx seems to do okay, as far, yeah, as, far right, as, right. as I can tell. And, you know, there's lots of other examples of that. And also, like, many of these municipal broadband aren't paid for with taxpayer money, right? It's no, usually, correct, right. A lot know, of the newer ones especially look for private funds, you know. Uh, it used to be more popular to do public, but it's just very expensive to fund and people just don't want to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and so they're they're doing them more as sort of public private partnerships where yeah. basically you know the city is knows that they have a problem that they can provide a, that you know there needs to be a service and they're looking for a company to basically come in and and provide that in partnership and the city helps you know with sort of the, the regulatory issues of getting rights of way and being able to do installs and things like that right but, and and know. these this ISB argument that you know uh government is competing with private industry. Well, you know, they wouldn't be doing that if you had actually provided services that people <laughs> right. liked and had competed in the first place. So if you want to stop a local community government from building broadband networks, you know, deploy better broadband, but they don't right. want to. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a, it's a disingenuous argument, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, one other issue that, that a few people brought up, but it, it doesn't get that much attention is, you know, I mentioned in the opening the idea of like, you know, the in the early days of dial-up, the competition, you know, there was lots of competition because anyone could basically set up an ISP on top of the the infrastructure and they compete at the at the service level. Um, but there's been basically no discussion or any movement towards, you know, making today's broadband providers share their lines in that same way. No, that's been very unpopular in telecom circles. That's the, you know, I think, I think ISP, incumbent ISPs hate that idea more than anything else, including that neutrality <laughs> that they should have to share those lines. Um, I mean, to some extent, I don't, I don't fully understand that. Right. I mean, I, I guess, you know, cause they still make money. I mean, when they do that, it's they're they're yeah. wholesale pricing it. Yeah. It just comes down to not being profitable enough. You know, it, right. you know it's, it's perfectly profitable to open your network and make money off of the ISPs that come in. I mean, you can you can see that in Canada that it's been perfectly profitable for Bell and these other companies. They just they just don't want to do it here because it's not uh, a it, it erodes uh, the monopoly control they have a little bit and they just they they don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's unfortunate because I think that there would be. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for when, you know, you could create an awful lot of competition at the service level. And, and in fact, you know, you could even if you were able to do that, you could even say, like, you know, go ahead, AT&T, experiment with with, you know, throttling and, and see how that compares. <laughs> to yeah, right. Services, and right? yeah. and if know? I have the choice of four other ISPs and AT&T starts doing this kind of uh, behavior they're known for, I'm going to switch carriers. So, yeah, I, I really like the open access model. I think there was a 2009 FCC funded start study out of Harvard that showed that open access networks uh, wind up with better service, lower prices, happier consumers. And the FCC effectively ignored it because it's such an unpopular idea amongst ISPs. Yeah. And even Google Fiber had originally said that they were going to operate Google Fiber as an open access network. And pretty quickly they backed away from that idea as well. 
there's just too much fear amongst ISP executives of losing power and changing yeah. the, the the status quo right now that we have, which is you know really skewed in, in terms of them not having to do all that much. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really unfortunate. I, I was, I mean, Google's decision to back away from from their open access plan was was pretty disappointing too. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know, you know, who knows how many people would have actually taken it up, but it would be um, nice to have the option. Uh, yeah. there, there, there's a municipal broadband service in Amman, Idaho, that that popped up in the news wires last week that is basically running an open access model, and consumers can simply go to a website and pick a different ISP and switch in a matter of seconds. And in yeah. fact, they could have like two different people in the same house have two different ISPs. Like, <laughs> the gateway that's plugged into the house would know which ISP you prefer and route you over their services. So yeah. if, you could, if you could change uh, ISPs in a matter of seconds, you would see all of this bad behavior magically disappear very quickly. Yeah, and It would be a great organic way to prevent that. Yeah, um, And still, I think pushing towards that idea is, is what we need to continue to do whether wireless yeah. or anything else, you know, just having multiple more layers of competition and, and multiple uh, physical infrastructures. It's just, it has to happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that would, that would definitely be, that would be an interesting fight. It just seems like one that is just so politically off the table that even, yeah. you know, yeah. even the, the people who advocated for net neutrality haven't been pushing it. And it's no. been like, yeah, I if, think it's a, it's if anyone yeah. even, even brings it up, they're kind of like, you know, yeah. shushed away. Yeah. Like, yeah. Don't, don't yeah. even mention it. So yeah. that's, it's, that's kind of unfortunate. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I think I think we sort of covered everything. Do we miss anything here in terms uh, of what, what to discuss? Just, just the idea that people understand who may, may not follow this very well, that this fight is not over and it's not going to be over. It has to net neutrality and an open Internet is something that people are going to have to fight for consistently and pretty viciously because these companies are going to continue to try and find ways uh, yeah. to make life difficult for consumers. So yeah. the, court, the court ruling is great. I, I don't want to underemphasize uh, how incredible it was that that happened after 14 years of pretty nasty fisticuffs. Uh, <laughs> but but this is a fight that's that's going to be going on day in and day out, and people have to remain engaged. I know some of the policy stuff is pretty dull for the general public to track, but people have to really remain engaged if they want to make sure that the uh, internet remains open. Yeah, 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 and you know, and and keep pushing the FCC to actually do the right thing and actually enforce it. I think. Yeah, is, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's going to be important, especially as we see you know new people and new faces come into the FCC. Yeah, um, that's going to be really important. But yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, but it, it's it's interesting. I mean, but yeah, from the perspective of the legal situation, it's in a good spot right now, and. Um, you know, still stuff to be aware of and be worried about, but yeah. it's be better than it could have been. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's great news. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us and it's good discussion. Yeah. And Thank you for uh, having me. I appreciate it. Sure, no problem. And uh, thanks for everyone listening and we'll be back next week. Thanks.